Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 79, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we will be looking at Superman number 7, which contains four brand spanking new Superman stories for our reading pleasure, or listening pleasure, in, in your case, I guess. As it seems has become tradition with episodes focusing on issues of Superman, I've got with me a special guest host, so it is my pleasure to welcome to the show Mr. Jeffrey Taylor. Hello, Michael. Not only is Jeffrey one of my co-hosts on Green Lantern's Light, but more germane to this podcast, or or the Superman anyway, he is co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which is currently looking at the totally awesome Reign of the Superman storyline from the mid-90s. Yes, we're right in the middle of that, and in fact, you were on an episode not not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we looked at, I've already forgotten now, Adventures 501 and Superman 79? Let's see, it was Adventures, if it was Adventures 501, then yeah, it would have been Superman number 79 first. Oh. Uh, well, we've talked about it in the past and off-air, and I know you've shared it on From Crisis to Crisis, but whenever I have folks on the show, I like to ask them. So, what's your history with Superman? Um, with with Bob Superman? Bob Superman, yeah. With, with, with Bob Superman. Uh, I got into the Christopher Reeve movies as a young kid, and that really stuck with me. When I was seven and then eight years old, Christopher Reeve's son, Matt, was on my baseball team, and I basically performed my first ever Superman-related interview by talking to Christopher Reeve, even though the, the interview itself never actually you know saw the light of day, and it's been kind of long, so I can't really go back and remember all the things that were said for quotes and everything. But regardless, from there, I... I think it was around the time that Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, came on TV, and I really liked the show, which eventually led me to... I guess the way that I want to put it is that I I remembered how much I liked Superman from the films. I hadn't really read any of the comics, but I wanted more Superman. It wasn't enough to, to wait a week for the next episode of the show. So I was in a bookstore and I saw a copy of The Death and Life of Superman, which had just come out in hardcover. So I bought it, loved it, and learned so much about the ongoing comic book world. And from there, I went back and picked up a whole bunch of the comics and over time picked up uh, basically every one of them from 1986 to uh, 2006, which is the era that uh, Michael and I, Michael Bailey and I talk about on From Crisis to Crisis. And how familiar are you with the uh, Golden Age stuff? When did you not, f- first encounter that? Uh, I'm, I'm not that familiar with it. I did read the first Superman Chronicles several years ago. and in, in fact, I think I have two copies of that. I have one that I got for myself, and then somebody gave me one. And uh, but, but it's volume one, of course. And then I did spend uh, one episode early on on John Wilson's show, which is called Golden Age Superman. I think that it was uh, it started up even around the same time as you were starting up Thrilling Adventures. I, I remember he had the idea to do it, and he was talking to me about it, about, man, some other guy is doing the exact same thing. And I'm like, well, just just do, do it anyway. You can, there can be two. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think our shows have been different enough that, I mean, there's a lot of people that listen to both and, and enjoy both, so. Yeah, exactly. It's not really a, a competition in this in no, this case. No, uh-uh. We're just we're both doing it because we enjoy the character and, and mm-hmm. want to talk about uh, you know his stories. So, right. Um, so, what is your favorite Superman story? All time favorite Superman story. I would probably go for Exile in Space from around 1989. Huh. Even more than the Death and Return stuff. Yeah. Cool. Okay. I really like how it, it, it is very episodic and it's slowly Superman going around through space. He's exiled himself after having killed the Phantom Zone villains and he has started sleepwalking and masquerading as Gangbuster without even realizing it and hurting people in the process. And so he exiles himself into space, and you get a, a series of really cool, interesting stories before you get to the build-up at the end, which reveals a lot of really interesting information about Krypton. Yeah, it's, it's a very uh, character-driven piece where Reign of the Superman, or yeah, Reign of the Superman, is more uh, big summer blockbuster with explosions and whatnot. Uh, right, and and it, it's also part of this huge story that starts with the death of Superman and goes into the funeral, and then, of course, you get the reign of the Superman, which is why the last time that we posted an episode, I posted it on Facebook and said, you know, this guest joins us for the beginning of the end of the middle of the end of the <laughs> death and return of Superman. Yeah. And and that that's actually an accurate description. It's a very it's a very large story. So we're we've still got uh, six episodes to go on Reign of the Superman, Bob Superman, Bob Superman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've enjoyed the coverage so far, and, and I enjoyed being a part of it. So definitely, folks, check out their coverage of it, and check out uh, Exile as well. They covered that. Do you remember what episode you covered that in? It was over the course of at least four or five episodes. Pretty. It, it begins with the beginning of 1989. Okay. But 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 also now that I think about it, there is one Superman story that I do like even better than that. But it's not in continuity, so I don't always count it. And that would be Superman's secret identity. Mm, that's good too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, I will I will actually link to uh, Jeffrey and Michael Bailey's coverage of Exile in the show notes. So check it out and be sure to check out From Crisis to Crisis. Uh, but right now we're going to take a quick break, play a promo, probably for uh... like one more thing. Okay. Okay. And for anybody out there who likes free comics, free online comics especially, I do write a comic which is called Slipstream. It's available at clockworkcomics.co.uk. The first two issues you can find by going to the bottom of that page where it says Slipstream, the archives, and you can read everything up to where where it currently is. And that's with art by Billy Hogan from uh, the... Superman fan podcast, which is also part of the Superman podcast network, as well as Charlie Niemeyer, who we all know as well. And host of Superman in the Bronze Age. That's right. And he's our colorist. Mm -hmm. And Adam DeChannel from the Superman homepage is our editor. So it's all Superman people working on a comic book that does not have Superman in it. We need to get Adam Adam on a podcast and then it could be all Superman podcasters. But it is about a character who can fly, so... Close enough. Well, we are going to, like I said, we're going to take a quick break, play a promo, and then we'll come back and look at the first story from the issue. 
The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, wife? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his answers, Lois. I got a hot story of one to one straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The Last Son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through! Nobody moves! This is a bust! The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down! Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic death and return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations, to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Alright, so we are back and looking at Superman number 7, which was cover dated November-December 1940. As mentioned, the book is now publishing on a bi-monthly schedule, up from the quarterly schedule that it had originally. It was released around September 10th, 1940, for a price of 10 cents, or 15 cents in Canada, and had 64 pages. Our cover is by Joe Schuster and Wayne Boring, and it shows Superman dropping down onto a... Uh, I put he's dropping down onto a boat, but he's actually dropping down onto an airplane. Yes, uh, that is that is firing on him, and the bullets are just bouncing off his chest. And there are other uh, warplanes flying around in the sky behind him. And there's also a blurb that uh, promotes Superman as the world's greatest adventure strip character, which is a blurb we're going to see for a while. Yeah, I, I think they were trying to get a little bit away from the idea of it being a quote-unquote comic book because that that does kind of imply that it's funny and when mm. it comes to the superhero stuff and the mystery stuff and uh, detective stories it's not trying to be funny and so you wouldn't necessarily call it a comic book so they were calling it ad- adventure strips hmm. yeah I can see that 
So what do yep. you think about the cover as a whole? It's kind of a cool cover. I I like the the plane, the up close aspect of it, how it's firing on Superman. And you can even see the bullets as they're just kind of ping bouncing off. But uh, it's very blue, very monotone and blue. And I I guess I just want more out of a cover. Yeah, I mean I like the layout of it. My my really my only complaint is that Superman's shield is severely messed up. It looks like they started to draw it and then just kind of gave up and smeared some color on there and called it good. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I like it. It's a it's a pretty dynamic cover. Uh, but you're right, though. The uh, his blue costume doesn't really contrast with the blue sky very well. Mm-mm. They could have uh, done something with that. But uh, like I said, this issue contains four new stories, and our first was untitled at publication, but later called. The Three Kingpins of Crime and Metropolis's Most Savage Racketeers. It was 13 pages, written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Joe Schuster and Wayne Boring, inked by Wayne Boring, and the issue, the story, and the whole issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth. Morin, Billings, Norton. Three of Metropolis's Most Savage Racketeers. When the law threatens to make them pay for their evil acts, death strikes. To save an innocent man from doom in the electric chair, Superman searches for the actual killer. The result? A terrific battle in which super strength is pitted against the twisted intellect of a super criminal. As we begin, Clark Kent and Lois Lane are assigned by Editor White to interview prosecuting attorney George Lash about his future plans. Neither are thrilled with the idea, but go anyway, and find Lash to be every bit the pompous windbag that they thought. Lash tells them that he's going to do what no one has done before, and that is bring in the underworld kingpins, Morin, Billings, and Norton, and put them up on charges. He's got the goods on them, and they're out on bail awaiting trial for conspiracy. Clark and Lois thank Lash for his statement, and after Clark keenly observes the way Lash puts out his cigarettes, the two reporters head to a restaurant where they happen to run into the three gangsters. Lois tells Clark to introduce her so that she can get their reaction to Lash's statement. Clark at first protests, but after some berating from Lois, he eventually agrees that it would make a good angle for the story. The five get acquainted, and soon, Morin tells them that if they want to quote, they can quote him as saying that the prosecutor is full of hot air. Sometime later, with nothing better to do, Clark suits up as Superman and heads out to check on Lash, afraid that he might need some protection from the racketeers. Upon arrival at Lash's hotel, he sees a prosecutor tossed from a car that quickly speeds away. Taking Lash inside, Superman notes the unconscious prosecutor reeks of alcohol, but that he appears to have been drugged and seeing a missing button on his coat as if he's been in a struggle. Superman heads out to tell Police Chief Watson what happened, but stops short outside the chief's office when he overhears a phone conversation between Watson and Sergeant Casey that Lash's wife has been murdered. Apparently, Lash and his wife have been going through some through a messy divorce, and they're unable to come to an agreement. Following police to the home, Superman learns they further suspect Lash not only because they found recently smoked cigarette butts there that had been put out the way Lash puts his out, but that they also found a button from Lash's suit clutched in his wife's hand. Our hero wonders if a small piece of wood that he spotted on the carpet might reveal the true killer and hurries back to the hotel. Superman tells him that his wife has been murdered and that he's the prime suspect, 
but that he has every confidence that he's innocent. Lash thanks him for his confidence, but then holds the Man of Steel at gunpoint, sure that it's all a trick. However, Superman uses his super hearing to pick up on radio waves, and then turns on the radio airing a news report that confirms the story. After freaking out that his wife is dead, Lash tells Superman that he was at the house, but that he and his wife had settled their differences, and she'd finally signed a property settlement. Unfortunately, Lash discovers the paper is no longer in his coat pocket. Superman hears police approaching, and Lash wants to run, but Superman tells him to stay, because only guilty men run. Rest assured, says the Man of Steel, if you're really innocent, you have my solemn promise, you won't be punished for any crime you didn't commit. Back at the Daily Planet, White congratulates Clark on his story about Lash's arrest, but Clark thinks to himself that he's not done quite a quite as good a job on proving Lash's innocence and that time is running out. He later runs into Morin, Billings, and Norton, who brag about how, with Lash having troubles, he'll be too busy to focus on hard-working businessmen like them. Heading out later as Superman, he hangs outside the window of the racketeer's office, hoping to get some information. However, the thug sees Superman's fingers on the window and tries smashing them with a hammer. It has no effect, of course... But with his concealment blown, Superman climbs through the window to confront the thugs, and he's met with a large barrage of machine gun fire. Superman merely deflects the bullets with his hands and then crushes the thugs' guns into a ball of scrap metal. Trying to avoid capture, the racketeers run into a steel-walled panic room, complete with an electrified door. But such things are nothing to the Man of Steel, who smashes through the door and demands the combination to the safe. When the thugs refuse, Superman smashes the safe and rips it open with his bare hands, discovering the missing paper signed by Mrs. Lash inside. Norton claims that he got the paper off a sneak thief, but Superman isn't buying it and grabs the racketeer, smashes through the wall, and soon lands at police headquarters. Norton tries to bribe Superman, but our hero can't be bought and throws him before Watson's mercy. He shows Watson the paper, proving Lash's innocence, and then says that Mother Nature will prove that Norton is the real killer. He, he goes on to explain that Norton hid in the bushes outside the home. When Lash left, he knocked him out, tore a button from his suit, and planted it in Mrs. Watson's hand after killing her. He then drugged Lash and doused him with alcohol and dumped him outside the hotel. But he says what Norton didn't know is that the bushes were actually poison ivy, and soon the rash will prove Norton's guilt. After Superman leaves, Watson tosses Norton into a cell, and then tells Lash he may soon be freed. Clark soon returns to the Daily Planet, saying he's been in conference with Superman, who gave him a news tip, and asks if Lois wants to come along. As they arrive, Norton is screaming for help, saying that his hands itch. Watson demands he come clean first, and Norton confesses that he did indeed kill Mrs. Lash. Lois pipes up, saying that she happens to know that the bush outside the home isn't poison ivy, and Clark explains that, evidently, Superman used some applied psychology on Norton. He suggested it was poison ivy, and let Norton's imagination do the rest. With the case solved, Lash tells Clark that Superman has his thanks, and as Clark and Lois head back to the Daily Planet, Lois says that while Clark may get a scoop... It's Superman who has her admiration for being clever enough to get a confession. The end. I love how all the mobsters are known mobsters. Yeah. 
I, I, I do get a kick out of that. The, one really great thing about the Golden Age is that you get a really dense story that sometimes there's an aspect of the story that they will just cover in one panel. Like, by the way, this happened next, and this is several hours later, and several hours after that, and you just get the, the one panel, and I, I kind of like that. And there's smoking in buildings, so you don't see that too much anymore. I mean, that kind of lasts all the way up into the 80s, so it's going to happen. Lois mentions that she's a SOP sister, and I have looked this up before. It's basically a term for a female reporter who writes articles kind of melodramatically to get people to be emotionally invested in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I enjoy when I see that because I, it, it happened a few times earlier on as well. And exactly how does Clark know these mobster people? so well. It's not explained at all. There's really no reason to. It's just oh, I'm a reporter, so I know all sorts of people. Yeah, it, it was kind of weird that she says, hey Clark, you know these people. Introduce, introduce me to them. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, the on panel four on page three, they start playing up, and I kind of like this, that Clark likes Lois, possibly as more than a friend. Yeah, I had a note about that too. Um, they've been kind of flirtatious. Well, no, I meant the writers. They or the the writer, I guess, because there's only Siegel at this point. But he's not been real consistent about that relationship. And you know, you'll have Clark asking Lois out for dates, but then he'll turn around and say, you know, that they can never be together because they're he's Superman, yada yada yada. And it's just, I don't know, but that, that what he said here, I don't know if he was just playing a part or if we're actually getting insight into what he thinks of Lois. Well, given what the next issue was going to be, right. I know there's not really a, a, a direct connection, but uh, yeah, c- consistency and the golden age usually don't go well together. Right. But there you go. Page four, what kind of dope do you think Lash is on? What did he get drugged with? <laughs> I didn't think about it. He just drugs him, so is it with a with a needle? Because it's got to be kind of fast acting if it knocks him out right away. I wonder if he used, like, you know, the, the Dexter method. And then, of course, put alcohol all over him so that people would think that he's drunk, but Superman sees through that. Page five, okay, Sergeant Casey... Is that Jack Casey who becomes the commissioner? At this point, he doesn't have a name. Just Sergeant Casey. Sergeant Casey. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. Because if he's Jack Casey, he becomes the commissioner and then finally retires right at the beginning of the reign of the Superman. Yeah, that character was named after this one. But I don't oh. think it's necessarily the same character. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I, I kind of like the idea that there's some consistency al- along there. But uh, the same thing with Inspector Henderson. Mm-hmm. So, pa- um, also on page five, Superman now has, okay, he's got the telescopic vision. He's got x-ray vision. I tend to think of those things as coming just a little bit later. Have we seen a lot of that? Yes. At this point, yeah. we, we've seen pretty much all of Superman's basic powers. Gotcha. Except for, fl- I guess technically flight isn't in the comics at this point, although it really is. 
it is and it isn't. Like he's got a hand from outside the window, right? And you do see him doing a lot of jumping. I, I think that the flight is just sort of kept subtle. Either that, or he really is jumping, and sometimes it looks more like flying. It's it, it's hard to say. In the same way with that first Fleischer cartoon, it's kind of clear that he's flying when he's you know punching those laser beams. Yeah. Without the momentum stopping him, but and he is he is flying on the radio. Right. So heat vision. We haven't seen that yet. But okay. that, that evolves out of X-ray vision. Exactly. A long way down the road. He uses the X-ray vision and it's hot. Right. Right. So he should not be X-raying people. So page six, Great Jupiter. <laughs> That's just an excellent, excellent exclamation. And let's see. He can pick up radio waves with his hearing. That must be annoying. That was a little weird, yeah. I know that the Superman from, like, Birthright in 2006 could see radio waves and see all sorts of other aspects of, of the spectrum that humans can't see, that that sort of thing. But hearing radio waves just seems like a little bit too much to me. And why isn't Lash more upset about the death of his wife? I mean, I'd be more bothered by that initially than being accused of causing it. I'd, I'd be upset about that too, but he doesn't even blink an eye. Like, what do you mean I'm being accused of it? Oh my god, my wife is dead. Come on. <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, he finally comes around to it on page 7. Like, oh, my wife is slain, myself accused, this is a nightmare. It, it must be a nightmare. And he says this line that just does not make me feel good about him since he is basically a, a prosecuting attorney. Uh, he he says that I've sent people to the chair with less evidence. <laughs> that doesn't make me f- feel good about the 1940s justice system. <laughs> well, as we've seen, all the all of the government officials are corrupt anyway. So, yes, which ends up being part of the Comics Code Authority. Eventually, yeah. you, can't, you can't have corrupt police or government anybody. It, so, so it can't be realistic. And page eight, yeah, when he's hanging outside the window, that was when I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's right, he cannot fly yet. Pages nine through ten, this whole sequence where he's taking down the the gangsters and getting the information from the safe, it's a little bit predictable. And, and, of course, you know, he gets shot at and he's – the bullets bounce off his chest because that's got to happen in at least once every story. And he's got to get into the safe where he finds the thing that, that, that he's looking for. And maybe it wasn't so predictable yet when this came out because maybe this was, you know, just the it, – it became the standard way of storytelling. And this is only a couple of years after he first came out, so – I'm not blaming them for, you know, copying themselves or going with a formula. But it but it is a little bit predictable. Page 11, I do like how a lot of these stories have Superman working with the law and doing detective work, which is what he's doing here. Yeah, he he did more detective work than Batman did. Yep. Page 12 <laughs> Uh, okay, I took these notes as I was reading through for the first time. So my note is, what? Who keeps poison ivy in their yard? <laughs> and don't you notice it pretty quickly? 
But then you get to page 13, the last page of the story. I love that it wasn't really Poison Ivy and that he was just messing with this guy's head. Yeah. He, he could feel himself beginning to itch because he knew that he was going to start itching. And I think that's brilliant. A little applied psychology. Yeah. Uh, is that all you had on it? That's what I had. All right. Uh, as for my notes, I, I really like the opening splash. It was dynamic and, and eye-catching, and I like that it actually ties into the story. Uh, once again, though, they're using the uh, kind of random hand-drawn version of the Superman lettering rather than the refined version like on the cover, and I'm still not sure why that is. Uh, but I, I didn't actually have a note about this, but I noticed it when I was going through the story for my synopsis. Um, this guy is wearing a yellow trench coat and fedora with a Tommy gun. And like we noticed over on Legends of the Batman, you'd think they'd be, want to be a little more careful about that, given how popular Dick Tracy was at this point. Interesting. I did not catch that. Uh, page two, we have the first appearance of Perry White in the comics, replacing George Taylor as the editor of the Daily Planet. Much like when the Daily the Daily Planet replaced the Daily Star, though, there's no mention of the switch in the story itself. And I also want to note that he's only called White in this story, and in fact, uh, the whole issue. There, there's no first name given for him, but we I know did, from I future really stories. It was the first appearance. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, Perry, he, he actually first appeared in the second episode of the radio serial. Um, and it, as far as the stories we've covered so far, he's not yet appeared in the, the newspapers. But here he is in the comics, so I'm sure he'll be in the newspapers pretty soon. So now we're just waiting on Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy's already appeared in the radio. Yes. Yeah, but he won't actually appear in the comics for a little bit yet. Right. Um, next panel, we're, we're only two pages into the story, and I already want Lois to shut up. <laughs> she she really annoys me But I did get a chuckle uh, Two panels later when she just tells this guy off Sometimes she annoys me But other times I really enjoy her ability To uh, say what everyone in the room Is probably thinking Panel 7 Gee I wonder if the way this guy puts out a cigarette Is going to be important since they spent a whole panel Pointing it out Yeah and, and Clark had to stop and notice that Right Right. Which it seems strange to me. I know that it w- that it becomes important later, but that's not the sort of thing that you normally notice. And it's how he puts out his cigarette with the, there are two bends to the cigarette so that he can put it out that way. And I don't really get why that's something. Why that's a distinguishing characteristic uh, characteristic for someone. Yeah, especially the way they pointed out later, which I made a note of, and I'll get to in a minute. Um, Page three, I doubt it was intentional, but Lois demanding that the thugs call her Miss Lane threw me back to the first meeting of Lois and Clark on the radio show, where she demanded the same thing of Clark. Page four, the narration in the first panel says, Later, with no particular important duties to occupy his time, Clark Kent, meek reporter, removes his outer garments so that he stands revealed as Superman. And then we see Superman leaping out the window and and talking about how Lash might need protection. So, only because Clark Kent is bored and there's nothing better to do, he decides to be a hero. Nice. Um, I, I really like the it's, final... It's a really strange explanation. Like, well, I got nothing better to do. I think I'll just put on some tights and a cape and jump out my window. <laughs> yeah. I really like the final panel on this page. Superman skidding downward onto the ledge. It was a very uh, dynamic shot. 
page five. Unfortunately, on the next panel, we have a really, or on the next page, we have a, a really silly-looking panel of Superman leaping on top of the car. So it's not all good, but but still, I thought the art in the story was uh, pretty decent. Uh, here we go, panel six. Those cigarettes were recently smoked. Doesn't that prove it? No, it doesn't prove anything except that he was at the house or that someone who smoked cigarettes was at the house. Yeah, that barely even constitutes evidence, let alone proof. Right. Um, page six, I liked Superman's comment that the prosecutor should recognize him. We've seen the, Superman's popularity growing, uh, for lack of a better word, over the stories with more and more people recognizing him and, and what he does. But if this guy is the prosecuting attorney of the city, he should know who Superman is, especially since Superman was at one point a wanted man. And I, I guess yes, technically that, they never that, really that resolved the, that. But. The, the fact that he's wearing bright primary colors with a big S on his chest, I mean, people have got to be talking about that at least, even yeah. if he doesn't recognize him by his face. Right, yeah. Jumping ahead to page eight, I like the panel here of Superman racing through the sky it's um it's a very dynamic and and really for this point in the books iconic image of superman but then once again it's undercut in the next panel as he's just hanging outside the window eavesdropping on the crooks i know that they've got to have superman learning of the villain's plot somehow and and eavesdropping seems to be siegel's choice way of doing that but it's just having him hang outside a window is inherently goofy and I can't help but wonder if even Siegel realized it because it's a scene that was very similar to one in either issue five or issue six where he was hanging outside a window and then the crook saw his fingers and tried to smash him. So, it, you know, if Siegel wow. realized it, he might have figured, hey, you might as well have a little fun with it. Page nine, the scene with Superman deflecting the bullets with his hands and then crushing the guns was a very George Reeves Superman moment. And I got a laugh out of the scene at the bottom of the page where he smashes through the door. And uh, So, this huge steel door is supposed to baffle me, eh? Mmm, electricity. They've thought of everything. But you didn't think of this. Smash. I just love those <laughs> moments. Page 10. I like the sequence on this page with Superman ripping open the safe. It was really more drawn out than we frequently see. And it caught me a little off guard, but I liked it. And that kind of leads into my next note, because pages 11 through 13, I think this is kind of the point where Siegel ran out of plot for the pages. But it's weird, because it's that's not really a complaint, because the rest of the story didn't feel padded out, or like he was just biding time. It, it's just that there's not a lot, that, a whole lot that happens in these last, you know, three pages. Um, well, there's the whole deal with the poison ivy and getting to the guy who's really behind everything. Right. I I didn't think of it that way at all. The, the, there's a later story that feels very much like you know the, the, there was this long lead up so they could give a super short like cram, crammed in ending, and this one it it really does feel to me like it's the third act of a story where they're getting the guy who's really the one in charge with this little poison ivy trick. Right. But compared to other stories, I mean, I've seen Siegel write stories where everything that happens in these last three pages happens in, like, a single page or even less. Uh-huh. And I just think it's a credit to Siegel that he could spread it out and not make me pull up what's left of my hair wondering <laughs> where when the story was going to be over. Right. Uh, but overall, I liked this one quite a bit. It was a solid story, a nice little mystery. 
Superman's involvement was natural and didn't feel forced, except for the narration that said he <laughs> only went to do it because he was bored. Um, there was just very little of the maddening plot points that keep popping up in a lot of these stories, and it was uh, it was a good story, kind of low key, but I enjoyed it. One of my only complaints is that there weren't a lot of Superman feats in it. You know, he rips open the safe and he uses his X-ray vision and super hearing some, but not really too much else. But honestly, sometimes that's okay, especially in a story like this one, which, as I said, was solid and entertaining on its own. Uh, what did you think of the art? I liked the art for the, for the most part. There are a little bit. There, there are certain moments that are just a little bit wonky, especially you know when he's hanging outside the window. That's definitely a a, a big one. There are times when Superman himself just looks just a little bit silly, like when he's lifting up the safe on page ten up over his head. He he kind of looks like he's a lot shorter than he should be, but he is bending his knees. Yeah. Aside from the, a few silly poses, I I love the art. I, I I love Wayne Boring. His work. He makes Superman look so dynamic and bold, even in simple panels where he's where there's not a lot happening. A good example would also be on page ten, where he's um, grabbing the crook by the coat, you know, and, and demanding the combination. That's a mm-hmm. fairly static pose, but it's a very nice panel, and he looks he looks like he's about to mess this guy up if he, if he doesn't hand over the combination. Yep. And it's also worth noting, uh, just for people who listen to the show regularly, that for a long time, Superman stories have used an eight-panel grid. But all four stories in this issue have something more like a nine-panel grid. And they actually break out of it a lot with, you know, you might have three panels, two panels, three panels, or two, three, two, or whatever. So just another evolution in the art that's worth pointing out. But yeah, overall, uh, just a big thumbs up on this one. If you want to read it, you can find it in Superman Archives Volume 2 or Superman Chronicles Volume 4. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. Got me dying to those powerful cousins on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatuts, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. 
fool. You're just a muscular freak. Blind the Hulk. Stop! You must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to let him drain of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast. FFcast.libsyn.com Alright, we are back. We're going to look at the second story, which, like the first, was untitled at publication, but was later called The Exploding Citizens, The Shattered People, and The Gay City Plague. It was 13 pages, written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Joe Schuster and Wayne Boring, inked by Wayne Boring, and edited by Whitney Ellsworth. And Jeffrey has a synopsis on this one. When a strange, inexplicable malady descends upon Gay City, threatening every one of its inhabitants with a terrible fate, humanity appears doomed. But a champion appears to battle in in mankind's behalf, a mighty warrior to whom stupendous obstacles are but incentives for combat, the daring, the dynamic Superman. So thousands throng the boardwalk of the of the lake resort Gay City, unaware of the incredible events soon to terrorize them. Suddenly, as two strolling citizens collide, they fall apart. This seem to explode. Horror reigns as the frightened crowd uh, surge for safety. Many more disintegrate upon colliding. This is really freaky. <laughs> And so, fearful of a fate so frightening the mind can scarcely visualize it, the mob stands rigid, fearful of all jarring movement. A new terror, as two autos collide, a driver, the drivers shatter like glass. Out of control, the autos mow into, helpless, into the helpless mob, claiming scores of victims. So, like, a lot of people just died. And so we, we do hear an announcement about it on the radio. And at the editorial office of the Daily Planet in nearby Metropolis, editor White sends Clark Kent to go and check it out. Lois overhears that this is going on and is not happy that Clark is being sent when she should be the one being sent. So she goes along, too. As the airplane carrying Lois sets out for Gay City, Clark changes into his Superman costume. And the next in- instant, a great leap launches Superman high up into the sky. And he says, I, I may not only find a big news story in Gay City, but a task for Superman. Through the fleecy clouds whizzes the Man of Steel like a runaway meteor. But as Superman reaches his destination, w- within a few minutes, he notices a trolley car stalled in the path of a train. Plunging to Earth, Superman hoists the streetcar to safety as the train bears down upon it. And he manages to just barely save it. And with Superman's telescopic vision, it reveals to him that the train's engineer is dead at the throttle. Springing in, Superman seizes the rear of the train, hauls it back against its its terrific drive... And as the train completely halts, Superman springs away. Seconds later, the Man of Steel swings in through the window of Jim Stanley's office at City Hall. Who comes in and says, who? And he says, Superman, commissioner at your service. Now, he always thought that Superman was a myth, but he assures him, no, I am very real. And I'm here to to to, to help. And 
the guy says, uh, "How fortunate that you've shown that you've showed up. I just received a mysterious tip off that the cause of the terrible malady lies within the gargoyle towers." So Superman takes off as Superman streaks down through this down to the side of Gargoyle Towers, he finds two mobsters who are saying, now blow it up. The dynamiters blow part of the wall loose as the debris hurtles downward toward the unmoving and badly frightened pedestrians, and Superman catches it. Superman heaves so heaves so that the mighty mass flies over his shoulder and into the empty lot across the street where where it lands it, on people where it lands on the people who are trying to blow it up availing himself of his x-ray eyesight superman notes that the that invisible rays covering the city emerge from a distant tower at the lake's edge and so it looks like stanley had the wrong steer and that's the source of the trouble meanwhile lois arrives safely at the gay city airport as Lois and uh, she heads off to a waiting room, as Lois's hand accidentally strikes against the door, there's a sound of tingling glass. What just turned? Uh, what just turned into glass? Did her hand just turn into glass? Yeah, because in the next panel she says, "Good grief, it's turning into glass," and she's looking at her hand. Okay, yeah, I, I was kind of confused about that. So terrified at her predicament, Lois seats herself in the waiting room, and she's not daring to move because her arm could break right off because it is now glass. As Superman sprints towards the tower from which the invisible rays en- emanate, he pauses and says, what's this? His x-ray vision reveals a gruesome sight, workers in a generating plant being shaken to bits by the vibrating generators. An irresistible leap carries Superman through the plant's wall. With a minimum of of violence, Superman stops the great generator with his bare hands. Next, Superman springs to the top of the tower and finds a manhole cover. Not a manhole cover. And just pulls off the top of the roof so that he can go go through it and launches himself through the opening where he finds a man named Kotsov, the long-missing scientist. And he says... Tell me what deviltry you're up to, or what's this? And to his horror, Superman notes that his tongue is missing. Snatching up a ray gun, Katzoff blasts away. But plucking the gun from the astonished scientist's hands, the man of tomorrow crushes it in his palm, and he takes him with him. And as they... He jumps back out through the opening in in the roof, and as they plummet downward, he says, Don't look so frightened. You won't be crushed by by the fall, although it's a pity you won't. And he notices some strange storage tanks that have a new gas being used with... to cause the disastrous disastrous effects on Gay City. At least that's what he's guessing. Abruptly, the three men who had been in Stanley's company leap upon Superman from behind. But a dexterous heave and the three men plummet over Superman's shoulder and far out into the lake as they yell, Yee-ee-ee! And he says, Go away. Don't bother me. Meanwhile, at the terminal... Lois is still worried about her glass hand, but as she raises her arm, there is a grating noise, and she says, I daren't put my hand down, or it may fall fall all the way to the floor. Superman hoists the huge tanks up into the air and throws them into the lake as well, and he goes back to the scientist, wondering where the antidote is to the gas. But, of course, he doesn't have a tongue, so Superman ties him up to a pole and says, this will hold you for the present, and he goes to return to the commissioner 
to to extend his personal thanks for sending him to a death trap. Streaking down out of the sky, Superman catches hold of, of the commissioner's window. But he realizes that he's not there, so he goes off to try and find him. But instead, once he gets to the airfield, he instead spots Lois Lane, whose arm is actually aching terribly, but she's afraid to move it still because it could break. Uh, stealing up silently behind Lois, Superman applies the antidote, and Lois does not notice it, but suddenly her arm is beginning to recover. But before Lois can move, the Man of Tomorrow presses the nerve at the base of her neck, rendering her unconscious. He just pulled a Spock Vulcan nerve Mm -hmm. pinch. Yeah. It's not the first time either. Yeah, okay. And he puts her into a plane where she'll be safe and out of trouble until... uh, Really, she didn't need to be in the story at all, is what it comes down to. At that moment, a plane takes off from the field with the commissioner at the controls. But as his telescopic X-ray vision reveals to him the the identity of, of the plane's pilot, Superman leaps leaps away in pursuit. So I guess this is kind of where the cover came from. Yeah. And he says, "You're wasting your ammunition, Stanley. Those bullets don't bother me at all." Because of course he's firing on him. Seizing the plane under his arm, Superman drops toward the Earth with it, which does imply that he's flying. So, and and he says. Get out of there, but the commissioner says, don't hurt me. Dodging, Stanley dashes through the terminal, and people explode as he walks through, it looks like. Or or is he just abandoning his suit? I don't dare pursue him at super speed, or I'm liable to jar some of these innocent bystanders, Superman says. But upon reaching police headquarters, the commissioner administers antidotes to the policeman. Superman walks into a barrage of machine gun bullets and tear, and tear gas bombs, bombs unharmed as Superman almost seizes Stanley he fires a ray gun at him which I think could even be the crypto ray gun for all I know and struck by sudden dizziness the man of steel sinks to his knees my strength deserting me and it's the effect of Katsov's new gas and so they decide to throw him into their strongest cell but once Superman's mind be- begins to clear and his strength begins to return, he's able to break the handcuffs, jump out of the door, and save the day and, and tell everybody that Stanley is a crook. Superman streaks to Kotsoff's laboratory to find the, cons- the conspirators preparing to flee, and he stops them all, knocking them out with you know quick hits to the head. And says to Gotsov, clear the air of your invisible and odorless gas and spread the antidote all over town. And he forces them to start explaining. And we get the explanation. We wanted to scare people out of town so we could buy property for a song. Then, when the scare was forgotten, we could sell our holdings for a huge profit. And if it hadn't been for your intervention, we would have succeeded. If it hadn't been for you kids and that mangy dog... After the city's air has been cleared of the dread gas, Superman leaps off with his captives. And what looks like Kotsov, who can now speak, although I think it's probably just somebody else, says, where are you taking us? And it's to the state capitol. At the capitol, after the captives have confessed to the state police, Clark reverts to, or Superman reverts to his identity of Clark Kent, the man of tomorrow. The Man of Tomorrow returns to Lois as she is revived. Lois says, what happened? And Clark said, plenty. Superman has freed the city of its crooked officials' mad designs. And later in Metropolis, uh, the editor White says, a grand story. Both of you should be proud of the splendid way you handled it. Clark says, thanks, boss. And Lois said, I'd be even prouder if I'd learned Superman's true identity. I I like how you just read the narration. 
it it made it really easy in 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 this case and i i started to to write out what i was going to say and then i realized you know what everything i need to say is here and i think that the reason for that who was the writer on this jerry siegel this was jerry siegel okay it's interesting because it strikes me that comics are still trying to figure out the difference between showing and telling like when you're when you're writing a a play or or a, or a film or, or 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 even a book it's all about showing what's going on not just telling that it happened and here we are getting a lot of uh narration i'm i'm not trying to jump over you with with the with the notes but there's so there's so much narration that it strikes me that either he's not trusting that the artist will get the information across with the image along with how how he's writing things with the with the dialogue either that or he's not trusting the audience to understand it i think it was equal parts maybe not trusting the audience given that they were writing for a younger uh age group and still trying to figure out the difference between showing and telling, like you said, because if you yes. read the Batman stories from this time, they did the same thing, or or other characters. Um, it wasn't just the Superman stories. And th- there are plenty of times when you should have text boxes, but really all the text boxes are doing here is explaining to you, to to the reader, what is going on, right? As opposed to letting the dialogue and the image tell the story. I'm getting into my notes. I'm not real big on the opening splash. I mean, it's serviceable, and I like that it ties into the story. But until you've read the story, it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Page three. A couple episodes ago, I had a rant about Lois crying sexism when really she was just being told to do her job, and it wasn't sexism. But this is sexism. He even says, it's too dangerous, dot, 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 for a woman... So at least she's justified in her complaining. And I like that she goes anyway, because it's a very lowest thing, even though, story-wise, her going to Gay City had no purpose whatsoever. She had nothing to do there. Yeah, yeah. I love uh, I love this two-panel sequence here in the middle of the page. We see Superman putting on his costume and then leaping up into the air with something... Um, something akin to, this looks like a job for Superman. It's also interesting that in the center panel here, he looks like he's attaching his cape, which I'm not sure we've seen him do that to this point. And at the bottom of the page, there is a trolley track passing right over a train track, right by a huge hill or a cliff that creates a blind spot for both vehicles. Who designed that? That's just a recipe for disaster. Uh, Page four, we have more nice panels on this page. Panel four with Superman halting the train and panel seven with Superman climbing through the window. These are all scenes or situations that we've seen before, but Wayne Boring is bringing just a, a very different dynamic to them, and I really like that. It may not be as apparent, uh, like to Jeffrey just picking up this issue, having not gone through the last two years' worth of stories, but you can definitely tell there's something new at work here. In the final panel on the page, we get a very Zorro-esque moment when Superman does a little bow and introduces himself. You know, Superman Commissioner at your service. Oh, I like that. That that was a that that was a bow. But you're absolutely right. The motion lines are very much a bow. Mm-hmm. 
uh, page five. I don't get here at the bottom of the page. Um, we, I guess we already talked about it, but it says he's throwing the debris into an empty lot, but it's clearly landing on these people that were trying to blow up the building, and they're screaming, hey, and no, no. So why do they call an empty lot? Well, it's empty of anybody who matters. <laughs> right. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Um, page six. I kind of wish the art would have shown the effects on Lois and the other people, for that matter, a little better. But maybe in 1940, that just wasn't possible since it mostly would have been a coloring thing. And coloring was very limited then. Because it, it, it's hard to tell exactly what's happening to her if you're not reading you know the, the 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 narration and the dialogue is really all you have to go on to see that there's anything happening at all um page 8 this is the part of the story that really drives home how grisly comics were in this era i mean they're not excessively gory or graphically violent but so far in this scene in the story we've seen at least 9 people be killed when they exploded or melted who knows how many were killed when the factory exploded and now we meet this guy who's got his tongue cut out, which is just really horrid when you think about it. Yeah, I've got some notes about that when it when it comes around to my turn. Page 10, it's nice to see that Superman knows this antidote has to be administered by, I guess, blowing it in the vicinity of the person <laughs> rather well, than guess. injection or, or swallowing or whatever. Uh, and, and it's also nice to see that this... Uh, this malady, which apparently causes people's limbs to turn to glass or make the people explode, can be instantly reversed by inhaling this dust or gas or whatever it is. That's one aspect that I really did just have to kind of forgive as, you know, a Golden Age comic book yeah. kind of plot line. Yeah. Uh, but also, as Jeffrey pointed out, Crypto Claw, uh, page 11. This was I thought this was clever here at the bottom of the page with Superman being unable to go after Stanley for fear of killing the bystanders. It's nice seeing Siegel dealing with or at least thinking about the effects of Superman's powers on his surroundings because we really haven't seen much of that and, and don't in a realistic sense. But what's frustrating is when you turn the page, the repercussions of it are completely ignored because yeah. – <laughs> We find out he's still able to check, er, catch up to Stanley with no problem whatsoever. And yes, we have this cool image of Superman smashing through the walls, but it's just it's frustrating, frustrating to see Siegel do that. I mean, he's done it before, but I don't know. It's just, it's just frustrating because he introduces a clever twist and then just jumps completely by it. Uh, page 12. Speaking of twists, Superman is hit with with uh, Kotsov's new gas causing him to become weak and dizzy and apparently unconscious. And I found this really interesting because we haven't seen much at all to this point that can take Superman out. Uh, yes, there's been a rare occasion in an early story where he was knocked out by an explosion or uh, an electrical jolt, but those anomalies aside, there's really only been one or maybe two other stories where he's just been knocked clean out. And oddly here it's by gas, when above almost anything else, he's repeatedly shown resistance to gas attacks, but maybe it's 
super science magic gas. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that it's super science magic gas. And the thing that, that kind of bugs me about it is that, yes, it slows him down and they can get him in the jail cell, but he just needs to, you know, get better for a second. Yeah. And then, and then he's back to being super. Yeah. But anyway, the important thing I want to take away from this scene is that he's knocked out by the gas. And I want listeners to earmark this and keep it in mind for a story we're going to be talking about before the end of the summer. Because I, it, it, it shows that Siegel was changing the way he wrote Superman a little bit. Uh, but the downside to it is, though, that much like the scene on the last page, it's a clever twist to the story, but it's immediately done away with. You could cut out every panel on this page except for the first and the last, and you wouldn't even know it. Because in the first panel, he's busting through the wall, the wall and then he's busting through the wall again in the last panel. So, Yeah, he goes through a lot of walls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, page 13, panel 4. We're almost to the end. Quick, get the exposition out. This is just a very convoluted plot to buy land. Isn't there an easier way to scare people? Maybe ways that don't involve mass murder? Yeah, like buy up a whole bunch of uh, worthless desert in California and then nuke the San Andreas Fault. Otisburg? Otisburg? <laughs> um, at the very end it's of the... It's a little bitty place. Yeah. At the very end of the story, White is congratulating Clark and, and Lois on the story, and then Lois makes her comment about, I'd be even prouder if I learned Superman's true identity. Yeah. Which comes completely out of nowhere. Because that Lois is trying to track down Superman's secret identity, or, or even that it's even common knowledge that he has one, has not been a part of the feature at this point. We've seen one story where a crook told Lois that he could reveal her, to her the true identity of Superman, but that was forgotten by the time the story ended and turned out to be a ruse anyway. Another story had a burglar breaking into Clark's apartment and accidentally seeing him change to Superman but he died before he could tell anyone. And other than that, to this point, there's been very little by way of Superman's identity uh, getting out, aside from some occasional comments from Clark about, you know, not being able to act without revealing it. And even those have just started popping up recently. And on the radio show, which I realize isn't written by Siegel, but there, Superman is still really a, a myth or an urban legend. I mean, people... They've, they've heard rumors about a flying man that does tremendous feats, but no one to this point has really gotten a good look at him, and he hasn't uh, – he, he's, he's spoken to very few people. So I just found that comment to be both weird and a complete non sequitur. It's, it's not only that, but the, the, the idea you're, – you're absolutely right. It shouldn't really be common knowledge that Superman even has a secret identity. Why would anybody just jump to that conclusion? Right. Because if you interact with Superman and you interact with Clark, if if you don't get that they are indeed the, the same person, why would you assume that somebody like Superman would walk around in a in a secret identity like a like an everyday person? Yeah. There's no good reason to assume that. Right. It it doesn't track. But it's interesting though seeing these different Standards of Superman stories being slowly introduced because Lois trying to ferret out his true identity is very much a cliche part of, especially when you get to the Silver Age. It's a, you know very much a part of the mythology, so it's yes. inter- interesting seeing these introduced, even if it's done in an, uh, a weird manner. 
Overall, I like the ideas here. The more, you know, the more science fiction-y side of it with a town of exploding people and, and such was neat. And I like that Siegel's been introducing or working more of these into the stories lately. Unfortunately, there didn't seem to be much to a point here. The villains' reasons for doing it were, at worst, nonsense, and at best, overly convoluted. And worse yet, it kind of suffered from the opposite of the opposite problem of the last story, in that there were maybe too many Superman feats and not enough uh, mystery or plot. And it wasn't absolutely terrible, aside from the villains' motivations. You know, I didn't have any major problems with it structurally. I just not a lot of meat to this story. Right. And they're still trying to figure out what the S-Shield is supposed to look like. Yeah. And that and continues for quite a while. Like a, the, the, the way that in a couple of years it will come to look like the S-Symbol that we are all m- the most used to. But it's inconsistent from story to story here. Mm-hmm. Um, page one, if if you're all set. Okay, page one. I I had to I had to say it. Gay city. <laughs> Is that near Fire Island? Could be. Could be. Okay. So for page two, based on this page alone, this might just be the most violent comic I have ever read, and that includes like Garth Ennis's Punisher Max. <laughs> These people just explode, and we, we don't know that they're turning into into glass and then running into each other and breaking because they're they're glass. But there's all these people just exploding, and then people in cars explode, and it just highly amuses me that it it's that violent. Yeah. Yes. Page three: too dangerous for a woman. <laughs> Way to make her go. Page four, uh, a really cool shot of Superman's cape with the explosion behind it. Yeah. Is that page four? No, that's not page four. That's page five, sorry. And uh, this is how you treat people when they come to your city. You try to blow them up. The, the, the city that I live in is considered one of the top ten worst places to be a woman in the U.S., and no one gets greeted the way that... that Superman gets greeted here. One of the worst places to be a woman? Wow, that's not a very auspicious honor, is it? No, it's not. Hmm. Uh, wait, th- th- this is on page six. When when Lois arrives, the first thing that happens is the, there's a, a guy seeing her get, getting off the plane and says, Back, if you went <laughs> your life into your hands. Yeah. That's not normal. <laughs> um, but... but uh, well, on the last panel on page six, again, it's pretty violent. People blowing up is kind of freaky. Jumping ahead a little bit to page 10, because I, I really didn't have a huge amount to say about the middle of the story. This whole deal with Lois's arm is, I, I found it kind of hard to understand what was even happening. And yes, we did get the explanation, but I guess maybe I breezed by it just a little bit too quickly. And it feels like these are just kind of rookie mistakes that I only catch because I make some rookie mistakes huh. in 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 my writing. And that's why I have an editor to help me out with that. And I stop and t- take a look at everything. I've got an artist who can stop and help me out with that. And I've even had J- Jerry Ordway read my stuff before and give me feedback. Uh, page... 
11. This is such a weird page. I can I can follow it if I force myself to, but I really you, you have to really stop and think about it. It's not easy to just follow exactly what it is that's going on. And I kind of love the second to last panel on page 12 where Superman is snapping his uh, his handcuffed bonds after he's been put into the jail cell. It's just such a really great image. And that look on his yeah, face. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it for these metal bonds. And then page 13, uh, the exact same thing that you were talking about, where Lois says, I'd be even prouder if I'd learned Superman's true identity. But we kind of got into that. And, and all I can really think to myself is, don't worry, Lois, it's just one issue away. If you're interested in reading this, you can find it in Superman Archives Volume 2 and Superman Chronicles Volume 4. In January 1937, President Franklin Roosevelt realized the world faced the greatest threat it has ever known, so he sent out a message. Get me H. Kelroy! Soldier of Fortune and all-around adventurer Ace Kilroy set off on his first mission to head to Transylvania and stop the Nazis from turning Count Dracula and his vampire slaves into pawns of the Third Reich. in Transylvania, East Kilroy learned that vampires are real and narrowly escape danger and death at every turn. Ace had to form an uneasy partnership with the Prince of Darkness in order to stop the Nazis' plan. And while they were successful, it ended with Ace swearing that someday he will find Dracula again and wipe him off the face of the earth. Ace has now returned to America for a well-deserved vacation, but he won't get to rest up for long. FDR has given him a new assignment, this time involving Frankenstein's monster. Ace Kilroy, the online daily comic strip, was launched on Halloween night in 2011 and has featured a new black-and-white strip every day with an extra-large color supplement on Sundays. The co-creation of writer-artists Rob Kelly and Dan O'Connor, Ace Kilroy quickly gained notoriety and rave reviews from such critics as The Onion AV Club, Robot 6, and Geekadelphia. With Ace about to head off on another dangerous mission, he needs your help. Via Kickstarter, pledge a donation to the Ace Kilroy fundraising campaign and help ensure Ace can continue in his fight against evil. There you can sign up to be a member of Ace's Allies, receive special limited edition Ace Kilroy merchandise, original art, and be among the first to receive Ace Kilroy Volume 1, featuring the complete story arc, plus unseen bonus art and behind-the-scenes material. Follow Ace Kilroy every day on acekilroy.com. All right, we are back, and we're going to look at the third story, which is 13 pages and has been called Burt Runyon's Campaign and Superman's Cleanup Campaign. It was written by Jerry Siegel, art by Wayne Boring and only Wayne Boring, and edited by Whitney Ellsworth. 
Crooked politics sabotages the very foundations of democratic government. When Superman finds a city of Metropolis infested by evil, conniving public office holders, he begins a cleanup campaign, which for sheer thoroughness and unorthodox procedure has never been before witnessed in the annals of representative government. As we open, Red Tyler is arrested for gunning a man down in the middle of a busy city street. He's put on trial, but the prosecutor, Ralph Dale, pretty much does everything he can to win the case for Tyler, which ultimately leads to an acquittal. Knowing the corrupt Dale will soon run for re-election, Clark Kent suggests to Editor White that the Daily Planet champion an honest candidate to oppose him. White approves, and Clark heads out to convince a brilliant young lawyer friend of his, Burt Runyon, to run. Tyler gets word and is worried, so his accomplice, political boss Nat Burley, pays a visit to Runyon and tries to bribe him not to run. Ever the stand-up guy, though, Runyon chews out Burley and tells him to leave and not let the door hit him on the way out. He leaves, storming past Clark, who has witnessed the entire conversation with his X-ray vision and superhearing, and heads out to an apartment in the rough part of town, all the while being watched by Superman. Burley hires two guys, Jip and Lou, to kill Runyon, and after tossing around what looks to be a live grenade, they leave on their deadly errand. But Superman, wise to their plan, grabs the car and leaps into the air. The would-be killers try throwing the bombs at Superman, but the Man of Steel is unaffected. He then grabs the thugs, allowing the car to crash into an empty lot, which really was empty this time, and <laughs> drops onto a set of railroad tracks right in front of an oncoming train. The guys scream and plead for their lives, and at the last second, Superman jumps on top of the train and then tells the men to leave town or else, to which they happily agree, and then Superman leaps off apparently just leaving the guys on top of a moving train. <laughs> Returning to Clark's apartment, Superman calls Burley and tells him that Jip and Lou have decided to, to take a vacation and that he should do the same. After hanging up, Burley calls Dale and corrupt police captain McDay and tells them to come at once, just as Superman hoped would happen. Superman slips into an office adjoining Burley's and listens as the three men plot to commit a hit-and-run and then frame Runyon and arrest him for drunken driving. Superman is about to bust some heads when a man enters the office. Thinking Superman is a thief, the man draws a sword, because, you know, everyone carries swords with them in 1940. Well, it's it's in his cane. But it's a sword, Jeffrey! Yeah, what? I carry a sword. <laughs> anyway, this guy attacks Superman, but the blade merely shatters against uh, the Man of Steel's chest. And in the ensuing struggle, both men fall out a nearby window. <laughs> Superman people always falling out in windows and stuff. <laughs> when you're attacking people with your sword? Yeah. yeah. That's why I don't have a second story on my house. Uh, makes sense, yeah. But Superman is able to twist his body and narrowly miss crashing into a bus and save his attacker. Grabbing the man who has now fainted, he leaps back up to the office to resume his eavesdropping, but is dismayed to find Burley, Dale, and McDay gone. Fearing the worst, Superman races to find Runyon. His home is empty, but soaring through the sky, Superman spots Runyon in his car, having been pulled over by McDay and another officer. McDay tells the second officer to take Runyon in on charges of drunkenness, and then drives off in Runyon's car and sets his sights on an innocent pedestrian. 
Superman streaks downward and is able to halt the car before the fatal strike. He then bullies McDay, telling him to free Runyon and get out of town. With the false charges dropped, Runyon continues his campaign, but finds his meetings repeatedly attacked by Burley's men. As Election Day arrives, the thugs continue their violent bullying at the polls, but despite that, voters turn out in record numbers, and as results start to come in, the race is close. Superman pays a visit to Burley and Dale and overhears Burley talking about how he's rigged the city's largest precinct and is sure that Dale will win easily. And soon, true to Burley's prediction, the results from that precinct come in, giving Dale an overwhelming win. But moments later, the precinct gets a visit from Superman, who begins tossing around Burley's man, forcing him to confess. Arriving soon to where Dale is giving his victory speech, Superman shoves Dale from the microphone, and the flunky confesses that Burley forced him to stuff the, val- the, stuff the ballot box. Police arrest Dale and Burley, and Runyon is declared the winner. Later, Runyon tells Clark he owes Superman a debt, which he can never repay, and Clark replies that the return of good government to Metropolis will be sufficient reward for the man of tomorrow. <laughs> and the end. All right. This was my least favorite story out of the uh, out of the whole issue, and it's not because it's a bad story or or anything like that. I think that it's kind of badly told. Page two, the story is actually kind of hard to fo- hard to even follow from the start. You, you have to be paying really, really good extra close attention to be able to to get a lot of these details. Um, and page three is. Bert from a previous issue? No. Is, there oh, okay. was there was a character very early in the newspaper strip with the last name of Runyon, but he was a uh an inventor scientist type. Okay. So 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 definitely not the same one. No. Page four, normally if a story is well written and presented, I don't even notice how little Superman is in it, but I'm noticing here. And I I kinda wanna get into some action by this point. And we we do see him, but there's very little action until you get to the bottom of page five, and that that's almost half the story already done. Mm-hmm. Page six, is this where the more powerful than a locomotive came from? <laughs> And when he's let's see, where is this moment? On page nine, where he's he's at this guy he's at this guy's apartment, they fall out of the window and they fall all the way to the ground, and then of course he's able to take off. So there are little hints that he can fly because we've we've seen them, but then he will do things like fall. Right. And he's gotta go all the way to the ground and even twist himself around so that he lands properly. And I just think it's funny that he, that he fell out of a window. <laughs> yeah, you don't see the post-crisis Superman falling out of too many windows. No, not so much. Uh, the last few pages kind of feel tacked on, like the story is pretty much over, and maybe a, a lot of this stuff could have been told a little bit more quickly. Uh, I don't think it really needed a lot of the last three pages. I, th- I think that a lot of that could have been put all into one this guy does look like what i think of lex Luthor, especially when you think of him in his in the unauthorized biography on that cover yeah yeah especially in the uh third to last panel here where he's got the big cigar in his mouth and exactly but i 
I don't really know if this story has much merit and it's just not told very well. Yeah, I can buy that. Um, I had fewer page by page on this one too. My biggest note is that the villains in the story are really one dimensional. I mean, yeah. it's it's the golden age and characters rarely, if ever, have much depth. But these guys here are about as paper thin as I've ever seen in a Superman story. They are sadistically evil simply for the sake of being evil. And it's really driven home over on page 10 when they carjack Runyon for the sole purpose of using the car to run down and, and kill a pedestrian that's completely unconnected to anything happening in the story. Just it's just, yeah, Runyon. Yeah, just we're bad people. Right. There's just got to be more subtlety in villains. And again, I realize it's the golden age, but it, it just really kind of took me out of the story. Uh, but to get into the page-by-page page that I do have, I liked the opening splash. It's not as dynamic as the first story, but uh, you can clearly tell what's going on, and it's, and it's kind of neat showing Superman leaping through the air, uh, carrying the car with one hand. And you got to think, though, and this applies to later on in the story where it actually happens, but these guys are suspended in midair, presumably a dozen stories up or more, and they're throwing bombs at the guy that's holding them there. So if the bombs do succeed in killing or harming Superman, that's not going to be good for them. They're suicide terrorists. Okay. Well, they, they would have to be. <laughs> uh, page two, the opening to this story... Uh, at least the first three panels or so reminded me of the opening to a lot of the early Golden Age Batman stories, which often started out with, you know, Batman coming across someone getting shot or, or held up. Um, and here's another example, too, of the, the lack of subtlety. It's, just look at how the prosecutor is handling these witnesses. He's he, Throwing the case is one thing, but he's not even trying. Page three... White and Clark devise this plan to push Runyon for the office. Uh, they run this article, Runyon runs for prosecutor, fights powerful political machine. And it's in like 70-point bold font, you know, all caps, exclamation points, yet it's on page three. The mind boggles. <laughs> um, I didn't catch that. I like that. <laughs> page four, I have no idea what's wrong with Superman's face in the last panel. It looks better in the original, but in the the Chronicles reprint, his face looks all puffed up and swollen like he's suffering from a, a, a bee sting allergy or something. It's very poor recreation on the art. Page 5, I like the panel. Let's see, this is panel 5 of Superman leaping downward towards the car. Again, it's more boring bringing some different visuals to the strip. Page 6, we have more nice art. I actually like just about every panel on this page, except for the the odd one at the bottom where uh, Superman's cape is wrapping around his face, but he's on top of uh, on top of a moving train, so that's exactly what it uh, it should be doing. I I agree. I really like the art on this page. Yeah, and and the the word balloons are actually wrapping around his cape. If you, if you look at that, <laughs> yeah, is it like that in the original? I am looking at a I'm looking at the reprint. I'm here. I'm looking at the reprint as well. I'm I'm thinking that it probably was because the the lines on the cape are intact. Yeah. Hmm. Uh but that's all I had uh, note, you know, page by page on this story. 
I, I just got kind of tired of taking notes at this point. I, I didn't entirely. I kind of did too. And, and part of it is that it's just not that great of a story. It's not told well. Yeah, yeah. I didn't entirely hate it. It is my least favorite of the issue. Um, I think I maybe liked it a little more than you did, but it, it's still not very good. The the art is great, and, and it's a pretty standard situation for Superman to be dealing with in this era. But the villains, there's just there's got to be more meat to villains than you know evil evil people doing evil evil things, even in the Golden Age. And it's weird because there seems to be a pattern with issues of Superman. You know where there's more than one story, where there's always one story that is just really, really bad, and that's why they didn't put it first or last. I'm guessing could be, yeah. Um, but if you're interested in reading this for for some reason, it's in like the other <laughs> <For some reason. laughs> like the other stories. It's been in Superman Archives Volume Two and Superman Chronicles Volume Four. June of 1962, a superhero unlike any other made his first appearance in the pages of Amazing Fantasy number 15, the final issue of that series. Six months later, this character would receive his own title, and from there he would grow in popularity and be adapted into several animated series, a handful of live-action series, both in the U.S. and abroad, have countless action figures made in his likeness, dominate the cinema screen, and much, much more. It is fair to say that the amazing Spider-Man is a pop culture icon and a fictional character that people all over the world identify with and love. This year, Spider-Man is turning 50, and Views from the Long Box, an internet radio series hosted by me, Michael Bailey, is going to celebrate the wall crawler in a series of episodes focusing on various aspects of the character's existence. Together with such podcasting luminaries as Brad Douglas, Andrew Leyland, John Wilson, and Scott Gardner, I'm going to give Spidey the biggest birthday card a comic fan could. He may not be my favorite character, but I like him a great deal, and he deserves the spotlight in this, his 50th year. Views from the Long Box can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. New episodes hit every Friday. Views from the Long Box is a fortress of Bailey Tooth production in association with the DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. So we've got one more story to take a look at in, in this issue, and I kind of liked this one. So who was involved with the creation of this one? Uh, the same people as the other stories. We've got writer Jerry Siegel, pencils by Joe Schuster and Wayne Boring, inks by Wayne Boring, and Whitney Ellsworth as our editor. And the title is The Construction Racket. The Construction Racket. I like it. Metropolis at night. Myriads of lights gleaming and glittering in deepest dark. With the ending of the day's toil, the great city's populace seeks relaxation in the theaters, amusement parks, nightclubs... But suddenly, a menace faces merrymakers, the Black Gang. 
a band of ruthless thieves who specialize in brutal robberies of nightclub patrons, terrorize the town. And as we can see on this first page, they are actually shooting somebody that they're holding up as they leave a fancy nightclub in their in their nice car. So we begin, we have a newspaper article that's the Black Gang Strikes Again. I really love that they're called the Black Gang, and it, it's, it's not a race thing, I promise. Yeah. The uh, it's it's not a race thing for them either. They wear black masks, but they are definitely white people. There are no black people in comics. Um, yeah, to this point, there has been only in the 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 comics and newspapers. There has only been like one character who was not white. And well, there's also um, there have been Asian characters, not necessarily in Superman, and they are always caricatures at this point. But then again, so are the white people when it comes down to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was but, just talking about the Superman stories at this right, point. Right, right. Yeah, um, so, editor Kennedy of the Morning Pictorial, which is a rival newspaper, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. telephones rival editor White at the Planet, wanting to know uh, if he's read the scoop about the, the black gang. And he says, me, never. I, I, I never read your blasted sheet. So White goes to Clark and Lois to, to say, why did they beat us to the story about the Black Gang? So Clark and Lois t- decide that they're going to go off. Well, actually, White decides for them that they're going to go off and and uh, find out what's going on. So they get all gussied up for going out to a nightclub. Clark even has a top hat and what appears to be a very nice tuxedo. And in order to disguise herself, Lois has bleached her hair so she is now blonde. And also suggests that Clark take off his glasses so that nobody recognizes him. And he says to himself, here goes now, if she recognizes me to be Superman. And Lois says, your face, it's... What about my face? Well, it's actually handsome. And she does not recognize that it's Superman without the glasses. So anything that we ever thought about how the glasses are what hide the identity, no, 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 no. Lois is just stupid. Um, Lois, did you know that in the future you're revered at the same level as Superman? Are there books about you, statues, an interactive game? You're even a breakfast cereal. Really? Yes. But as much as everybody loves you, there is one question that keeps coming up. How dumb was she? Probably should have saved that for the notes, but oh well. So they they go to the nightclub and they sit at a table. They're actually blocked by a pillar. There's a pillar that's that's holding up the ceiling, of course, and they can barely see in front of them because they're in one of the worst seats in the house. I had a similar thing happen to me when I was in... uh, in Washington, D.C., I went to the Ford's Theater where Lincoln was shot, and I saw a play, and there was a column right in front of me. <laughs> Great. So Lois suggests that Clark start throwing around money, and so Clark just starts giving money out, out to people like, hey, I would prefer to have a better table. Here's a $20 bill. I would like to <laughs> – and and. and Clark even says that if he keeps this up, he'll end up living in the poorhouse. So the show begins where all these girls be- begin to dance. They're kind of scantily clad, as was the fashion of the time. And Clark is throwing around money to them, too, like they're strippers. It's really kind of amusing. And then he pays uh, money to the to the conductor of the orchestra so that they will play their favorite song, Stardust. I'm, I'm wondering if that's a real song. So... 
Clark is basically broke by the time that this issue is over, but but it doesn't really matter. And all these people, especially the people who may or may not be the black gang who are watching, figure that this guy really has a lot of money and he might be worth sticking up. So they, one of them actually goes up and introduces himself. His his name is Peter Peeker. He's from Morning Pictorial. He's not part of the black gang, but Peter Peeker. <laughs> And as, as to quote Lois, how interesting. <laughs> and so they, they have a conversation about how, you know, it's evident that they are newcomers to Metropolis because he's never seen them around before because they're in disguise. And uh, as Peeker leaves, Lois wonders, you know, did we make an impression? Well, we do seem to be making progress, says Clark. Seated alone at a nearby table, Peeker's former companion smiles boldly at Lois. <laughs> and Clark says, I don't like the way that that fellow's leering at you. <laughs> and so Clark finally decides that he's going to get Lois up and dance. The man who gave that leering smile comes up to and tries to cut in, which Clark is not very happy about. He was actually enjoying this, this evening much more than he had imagined. And Lois's name, by, by the way, is Miss Andrews in this case, since she's in disguise. So blonde Lois is Miss Andrews. And he's, he's saying to himself, you know, are you positive that we haven't met somewhere before? And she says, not that I recall. <laughs> and his name is Frank Jordan. Wonder if he's related to Hal Jordan. And he seats her back down next to Clark, who is not happy. He's basically being a Mr. Pouty face. And uh, <clears throat> a woman comes up and recognizes Frank Jordan and says, Say, we haven't seen each other in a long time. And he says, Jane, sit down, which Lois is just a little bit jealous about. And Clark is equally jealous about. So you're a great big oil magnate, she says to. I believe that's Clark. It's hard to tell because they actually do look very similar, mm. Clark. But at least somebody's finally paying attention to Clark. And as the evening progresses, Lois pays more and more attention to, to Jordan, saying things like, oh, you say the funniest things. <laughs> but Jane is still being very nice to Clark, and at least there's he's getting some sort of action. <laughs> and he takes her out to to the car and uh, and opens the door and she says oh it's so gentlemanly gentlemanly of you to take me home if only i could let you know how much i appreciate it and he says don't bother i hate to leave lois but she practically insisted she must have some good reason he says that to himself or maybe that's what they have instead of thought balloons at this point they're they're in the back of the car which is a, must have a driver of some sort and she says do you mind moving closer so i don't have to shout mm -hmm. and she gets really really close and basically goes in for a kiss but clark pushes her away uh, you know in, in as much as he's superman he's afraid that he might forget himself and crack her ribs which is really funny suddenly a sedan forces the cab to the curb saying pull over and it's the black gang out of there, all of you. A false move from anyone and we'll shoot. And Jane yells, oh no, it's the black gang. They'll shoot me. Don't don't resist them. Please don't. So Clark gets out and they say that uh, we want your wallet. And they even knock him over the back of the head with some sort of a cudgel. But he just runs away. They shoot at him and the bullets bound off his, bounce off his back, but he just keeps on running and he comes back as Superman and they force the girl into their car so he has to follow them. Turns out that, that uh, the black gang has uh, – what Superman's sensitive hearing enables him to overhear is uh, the black gang talking to Lois saying, a fine decoy you turned out to be. 
is that Lois or is that supposed to be Jane? I'm really confused now. Which page are we on? I'm on page 10 in that bottom left panel. I think No, it's supposed to be Jane, but they've miscolored it to look like Lois. That's what I thought. So yeah, that's that's Jane. It, it she looks exactly like Lois who we see in the next panel leaving the green hat with with Jordan. And they go into a garage and Lois says, "You know what what does this mean? You'll learn you'll you'll learn soon enough." Give me that. And so he's carrying a small revolver. And, no, she's carrying a small revolver in her pocket, and she wants it back. And uh, since he won't give it to her, he, call, he she calls him a coward and just leaves the car. And he forces her to go into the building. Minutes later, the black sedan arrives at the same garage, and he knows it's the black gang's hideout. And uh, the black gang has to tell... Jordan that they had no luck with the oil man who was Clark. They didn't know that it was Clark. So Superman is outside and sees all this going on and uh, as Superman is about to enter the garage, he pauses because he sees columnist Peter Peeker. And so Peeker comes in and says, "Uh, so how did you make out? And somebody says, well, these jewels are priceless and we ought to get a huge ransom for the dame. And it turns out that the jewels are fake, as Peter Peeker realizes. They go through her pocketbook and find Lois Lane's print card and recognize that she is indeed Lois Lane. So she bleached her hair and that. A reporter. And so Peeker decides that he's going to get out of there as quickly as possible. And they're probably going to turn and shoot her. But Jordan doesn't want Peeker to leave. So he actually pulls the, pulls the gun on him just as Superman gets in and saying, uh, you'd better not do it. The Black Gang is no match for the Man of Steel. They fall like bowling pins. And as desperate as they desperately empty their guns at him, he catches the bullets. And say, he says, thanks, fellas. Now dance. And he throws them at their feet, causing them to dance. Ties them all up, saying, that'll you. And after, after Superman frees, frees Lois, she calls the police. And the Superman decides that all that loot there is enough evidence to send them up for life. And in the most... Con- Danced little bit of an ending that we could possibly have. Shortly after the police arrive, and he returns to Kent so that they can tell them everything that happened. Clark shortly returns to the newspaper, um, returns with a newspaper extra to hand to, to Mr. White. Here's the column, Sergeant Casey, a scoop on the holdup of Kay Andrews and Ralph Carlson. And that's how Peeker got, got his news in, in the first place. He sent notices to uh, to... He sent notices of the holdups before they happened because he was a member of the Black Gang. Later at the planet, uh, Mr. White says, my apologies to you two, to, to both you, Clark, and Lois. You're still the two best reporters in town. Clark says, coming from you, that means something. And Lois says, with Superman on our side, we can't lose. The end. Uh, and it's all Golden Age stories are at this point. It's very dense. Yeah. All right, to get into the notes, I really like the layout and the tone of this opening splash, but it's not very well rendered, um, especially this guy here in the middle who kind of looks like he's doing a dance rather than getting shot. But it's very moody and, and tonally, very dark and, and uh, tonally dark splash page, and unlike a lot of the other splashes in the Superman books at this time. And there's no Superman on it. In fact, we don't see Superman until all the way over on page 10, which I found interesting. 
but okay, that that goes to show that it's actually a, a pretty good story because if I didn't even pay attention to the fact that Superman doesn't show up except for a few, a couple of pages towards the end, mm-hmm. it, it does go to show that it's a pretty good story. I think the first one out of this issue is my favorite, but this is my second favorite. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And then the second one as my third favorite, and then that... Uh, exact same here. Okay, good. The, great, uh, minds, great minds think a lot. I have totally forgotten what the story was now. The third story, the one we didn't like. Yeah, the, about the... Um, oh, with Nat Burley and the... With the politicians. Yeah. Runyon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but moving on to page two, this is the first time we've seen the, the morning pictorials editor, who is apparently named Kennedy, and a pretty big jerk at that. And at this point, we have seen more empl- more employees of the pictorial than of the Daily Planet, which I found really weird. Wow. Lois says, <laughs> she says, who knows? Maybe Superman is disguised as a reporter. And you just want Clark to reply, ha, 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 Lois, oh, yeah, that would never happen. Uh, Lois, Lois, come here. Yeah, yeah, yeah come here. <laughs> um, but seriously, I am surprised that nothing more is said of that. There's not even a thought balloon or a, or a, you know, a thought phrase from Clark. Maybe Lois is just being facetious, but it does seem like another tiny step forward in her interest in ferreting out Superman's identity. Even if, like I said with the previous story, these things are being thrown in very much at random with, and with no seeming plan. Page three, though, speaking of, Clark takes off his glasses and worries that Lois will recognize him as Superman regardless of the fact that he's done it several times before, including in a story from the dailies that we just looked at, where he spent 90% of the story without his glasses, and no one recognized him. Um, in fact, I think this... It's the hair. Could be, yeah. The glasses mean nothing. It's all about the hair mm-hmm. and the fact that he doesn't have a giant red S on his chest and a cape. Yeah. And shorts. <laughs> on the outside. Yep. Um in fact, I think this is the first time we've seen any actual acknowledgement in the story that without his glasses, Superman and Clark look a whole lot alike, even if no one notices it. Page four, I'm kind of surprised that Lois didn't berate Clark for getting them sat behind a post before ordering him to pay the waiter off, because it seems like just the kind of thing that she'd blame Clark for, even though he has no control over it. Page five, more Lois insanity. Despite making it very clear that this outing is strictly business, she's all pouting because Clark is paying attention, or no, paying, playing a part in paying attention to the girls rather than giving her his undivided attention. You brought up the fact that he requests Stardust. I actually looked it up. Stardust is a jazz standard that was composed by Hoagie Carmichael in 1927, and it later had lyrics added to it in 1929 by Mitchell Parrish. And this song has been recorded, you know, by countless artists over the years, including Glenn Miller and Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald. Ah, oh, oh, really? Yeah. It's, I know that. Okay, I I know the Ella Fitzgerald version. Okay, it's okay. a song about a memory of a lost love, which kind of seems appropriate for Superman. Maybe not so much right now, but later on in the Silver Age, especially when. Definitely. With Siegel's stories when he came back in the 60s, many of which are are thematically about love and loss. So I thought that was kind of neat.
Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely night dreaming of a song. The melody haunts my reverie, and I am once again with you when our love was new. And each kiss and inspiration. Oh, but that was long ago. Now my consolation is in the stardust of the song. Beside a garden wall, when stars are bright, you are in my arms. The night. Tells his fairy tale of paradise where roses grew. Though I dream in vain, in my heart it will remain my stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. Stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. Page nine. Clark comments here, and this is where Jane is coming on to him, and he says, "And as much as I'm Superman, I'm afraid I might forget myself and crack her ribs." And yes, we laughed at that, but I'm, I just. I found that interesting because it's the first time we've gotten a comment of that nature from Clark or Superman. Whenever women have made advances towards him in the past, it's always been, you know, he can because his life is dedicated to truth and justice and so on. And even today, they don't really deal with that aspect of Superman's powers or abilities for obvious reasons. So I just found it interesting and surprising that Siegel... Um, thought of that and, and worked it into the story or a line in the story. Well, it, it it's not something that they go about showing or right. anything like that. But it's it's one of those things that uh, it it does get talked about. It was talked about quite a bit on Smallville that he was concerned about what would happen if he were to uh, get jiggy with it with Lana. And mm-hmm. if he would be able to control himself. And, and then there's that whole storyline where he loses his powers and so it's safe to do it. And then he's worried about doing it afterwards. And then they get together again when she gets superpowers, which was yeah. kind of kind of amusing. But by the time he, he gets together with Lois, there the, the worry just isn't there anymore. Right. So he gets that he can control himself. But yeah, th- there have been other stories that have been sort of in that vein as well. That, uh, in Lois and Clark, it happened. Right. Yeah. I like that the Black Gang are, are wearing masks rather than just being thugs in suits. I mean, I guess they're still thugs in suits, but at least the masks give them 
a little bit of a different look. Jumping... Actually, we're not jumping anywhere because that's the last note I had, except for that I, I kind of uh, expected the Sammy Tinberg music to swell up at the end there when Lois chimes in with, with Superman on our side. We can't lose. That's really all I had. I mean, the, 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 it was a fun tale. But it, it just wasn't especially memorable. But I do think it is my second favorite of the issue. It's you know it's solid and well told. The art uh, it wasn't terrible, but it did feel a lot more rushed than the other stories. There weren't any interesting or dynamic panels as with the other stories, and they could have done a lot more to distinguish between the looks of Clark and what's his name. The uh, yeah uh, Jordan. Yeah, 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 Jordan, and then between Lois and uh, Anne, no, Jane, yeah. Jane, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at, at times it was... Me Superman, you Jane. <laughs> at times it was uh, very confusing because everyone looked the same aside from their clothing and, and maybe their hair color. Yeah, uh, I mean, Jane had the exact same hairstyle and dress. Yes. yes. And even, so when, even when they had that the coloring hair... Yeah, the, the revised colorist got confused. Yeah, and and when when you see that that is Jane, that it ends up being colored exactly like Lois, you can see completely that there's no differentiation. Right. So what do you have on it? Well, for page one, right off the bat, this is my note: a black gang. We're white, so we better be careful what we say. <laughs> the funny thing is that my wife and I just have this little like joke it's not like an in joke or anything like that have you ever watched that show the amazing race i've heard of it i might have seen an episode or two but i just i'm not big on reality television i'm not i'm not either there are only a couple of reality tv shows that i i did end up garnering an interest in most of them are cooking shows like top chef and hell's kitchen but the amazing race is one of the ones that i do actually watch because they go all over the world and i find it really interesting and i i see places that i want to go to and so I, I enjoy it more that way than anything else. They did a family edition in the eighth season. So they had these different families and they, they would say, here's the Kaiser family. Here's the Bradley family. And the only African-American people that were on that season of the show, I, I think that might have been the only ones. Their actual name, last name was Black. And so they were introduced as the Black family. Wow. So they're introduced, and it's just like, the black family. Like, yes, yeah. yes, they are, I guess. Okay. <laughs> and it just amuses the heck out of me. So when we have the black gang, I hear it, the black gang. And Editor White. <laughs> White. <laughs> okay. And he says blasted, and it's so very much him. If this is his first appearance in Superman number seven, and he's already saying things like blasted, I love it. Uh, the pictorial guy from the planet, whose name is Peter Peeker. Yes. I c- kind of have to mention that. I'm not saying that Stan Lee stole the name, you know, 20 years later or anything like that right. and, and then, then altered it. That is not even close to what I'm saying. I just get a huge kick out of the fact how close that is. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of thought about that, too, and I didn't make a note about it, obviously. But when I was reading the story, that crossed my mind. And, you know, Lois thinks that he could be Superman in disguise. Right. Which is funny because, uh, okay, he has a mustache. 
In fact, if anything, he looks more like Foswell. And if you're not familiar with that, he, he was a character in Spider-Man. And he also became a character in Superman who was given the same name and made to look and kind of act the same way in the late 80s or early 90s as well. Well, clearly, whenever Peter Peeker becomes Superman, he shaves <laughs> off his mustache. And then when he has to become Peeker again, he uses his super facial hair growing ability to grow it back. In the same way that Lois can be blonde in, in this one story and probably not be at all blonde right. later. Right. I'm, I'm guessing. I haven't read Superman number eight just yet, but let's see. The uh, page three, my problem with this is that since Lois bleaches her hair to, to look hotter, it's saying that blondes are hotter. And I, I, I just don't get that. Was she bleaching it to look more attractive or just bleaching it to look different? She was doing it to look different. She says something about, on oh, this is on page three. I hated to bleach it, but it was necessary so that I wouldn't be recognized tonight. And, oh, uh, wait a second. Maybe it was my own implication. I thought that she said something about, huh. I guess I implied that. It was not actually there. My mistake. Very good. And uh, if she didn't recognize Clark with the glasses, why would she recognize him without? <laughs> I mean, this makes perfect sense in that it never made sense to begin with. Page four, a 20, a $20 bill is a lot of money here. Oh, yeah. That's like a couple hundred bucks right now. That's like 500 bucks now. Is it that much? It's not really that much, but I mean, it, 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 think about it—a uh, uh, book for a dime. Three hundred twenty-eight. Yeah. That today would be at least what seven ninety-nine, eight ninety-nine. So it, it's it's at least two hundred. Three hundred twenty-eight. I just looked it up. Three hundred twenty-eight. Interesting. It's it's a lot more money than it sounds like to to us, because gas prices are now you know four bucks a gallon and thereabouts. Uh, the rest of my notes are kind of sparse. I really did. In, I, I enjoyed the story, but I only had so much that I really felt like I needed to say. Page seven. I wonder if Frank Jordan is related to Hal, maybe an uncle. Great uncle. Yeah, exactly. Page eight. I kind of don't mind that all the men look the same because they're just different enough that you can kind of tell who's who. Yeah, Clark's got the more squared face and. <laughs> yeah, the the chin is really important, and the fact that you can see just ever so slightly his cheeks—that's one of my favorite things about the way that he's yeah. on in in this era—is that you can tell that it's him, kind of by the cheeks, which I thought was really overblown when you get to something like Superman Doomsday, the the animated DVD. Mm. He had really really freakish cheeks. And page 13, it's my last note, this was a seriously rushed ending. And it just bugs me when panels are wasted on aspects of the story and then the ending is just completely rushed and has to be filled so much with word balloons that you have to make the heads tiny. <laughs> At the very bottom of the panel, yeah. John Byrne would, would do this kind of thing in the 80s as well. I think it's more of a pacing issue with Siegel, though, than it was for Byrne. Yeah. 
that's right. my notes on on this part of the issue. All right. Well, if you want to read this, it's uh, the same places as all the other stories from the issue. It's Superman Chronicles Volume Four and Superman Archives Volume Two. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. It was for this moment that we were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest joined to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might Beware my power Green Lantern's Light Green Lantern's Light A monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, Jon Stewart, Guy Gardner and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today Say the oath Join the Corps Green Lantern's Light Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com Other features in this ads in this book, uh, this issue of Superman, much like the others, that opens with a frontispiece. Unfortunately, this one is really phoned in. We see the Superman figure from the cover of last issue, Superman number six, and a couple panels snagged from early stories. Compared to the others, it's really unremarkable. And there is a full-page ad for Action Comics. It doesn't plug any specific issue, only that the magazine showcases Superman and several other exciting features. There's a half-page ad for All-Star Comics number two, and a half-page ad plugging Superman, Action Comics, Batman, and Detective Comics. And we've seen both of these ads before. They've just updated the covers to reflect the most recent issues. And there's another ad, roughly a third of a page, where you can write in and order your very own Superman sweatshirt, t-shirt, or shorts. And this is one of the first, if not the first, ad that we've seen for Superman-related merchandise beyond stuff tied in with the Superman of America, America Club. So that's very cool. Well, start getting used to it because there's going to be a lot of Superman merchandise. If this is the beginning of it, yeah. 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 Uh, Sweatshirts are 69 cents, while the t-shirts and shorts are 29 cents each. 
and that translates to $11.33 and $4.76, respectively. It also so. goes to show how much like a $20 bill really is worth in this era. Oh, definitely, yeah. You ha- could- ha- having a 20 is essentially like having a $100 bill, e- even though it's worth more than that when you try to compare them. Not everybody just walked around with $20 bills all the time. Right. Uh, the book also has two ads for the Superman radio serial. First is the half-page ad we've seen before, which is it basically lists just some of the stations where you can hear the show or, or could hear the show. But then we've got a full-page ad for the show promoting not only stations where you can hear it, but for the very first time they're promoting an upcoming storyline with the return of the Yellow Mask. The most thrilling story ever heard on the Superman Adventure Serial comes to the air over your local stations beginning October 7th when the Yellow Mask returns. A crazed scientist whose twisted brain invents amazing machines and devices. No. A crazed scientist whose twisted brain invents amazing machines and devises diabolically clever schemes to aid him in achieving power. The Yellow Mask, once banished by Superman, returns. Don't fail to listen to every one of the thrilling and exciting episodes of the Superman radio serial, beginning October 7th, when the Yellow Mask returns. Hear how Superman, champion of truth and justice, alone fights to save the world from domination by the most vicious criminal who ever lived. And I'm really, really looking forward to that storyline. I don't quite know which episode it'll be, but I've, I've got a special guest lined up for it if we're able to, to sync up our schedules to record. How much of the radio show have you heard? I've heard the first uh, 30 or so episodes. The ones on the box set? They, they were released uh, on a Radio Spirits box set back in the 90s. No, if they, if they released the entire thing for sale, it would probably have to be something that would be playable on a computer as MP3s because to do the entire thing as a series of of CDs or something yeah. would cost a couple thousand dollars just for production purposes alone. If if they actually released the entire thing, I would go out and buy it. Oh, I would too. Yeah, but it's not there are still episodes that are lost and will probably never be recovered. Yeah. And that's really unfortunate. And I do not feel bad about illegally downloading them. Well, it's not illegal because the radio show is in public domain. Okay, great. Like I don't, Fleischer I cartoons. don't feel bad about da- about downloading them. The Fleischer cartoons I've got on like four different sets of DVDs, like all of them. Yeah. So it's that's not something that that I that I need to do that with either. They also, I mean, there are plenty of Superman related things that they need to finally release. They need to release the nineteen uh, sixties series. They they did the first block of them, and I think there are two more blocks to go, which may or may not ever see the light of day. I also don't feel bad about uh, having the the later seasons of Superboy from the 1980s and early 90s until they want to actually release them on DVD, and when they do, I will buy them. Yeah. I think it's only a matter of time before all this stuff gets released. Uh, the Maybe not the, uh, the radio serial, but like the Superboy series and the 60s stuff. I think it's only a matter of time. Because there's it's it's a matter of time. It's, yeah, it's only a question of of how much time. And when it comes to Superboy, the first season did not sell well. 
that that's why they did not do do a later one. I remember the day that that came out. It came out along with uh, three or four other Superman related items right around the time Superman Returns was hitting theaters, and I I went there and bought I think three of them. And the one that I didn't buy was Superboy because I wanted to wait until there was a until there were later seasons. I just wasn't that interested in it. And I I, I will buy it if they're going to put out seasons two, three, and four. I will buy season one. I guarantee that. But at the same time, they also need to release that 1960s Superman cartoon serial i would love to see uh if you go on youtube you can find a full version of the musical adaptation which was put into the it was from 1975 where uh leslie ann warren plays lois lane but if they they release that stuff you can actually order that through the warner archive i think okay well Well, maybe i'm thinking of the that superheroes roast Okay, maybe. Now that I think about it, yeah, that's you. You can definitely order the Legends of the Superheroes and the the roast, but maybe not the musical. And then on top of all that, there's Caped Wonder, which is out there that is basically putting together the first two Superman movies for like an ultimate international versus U.S. version that includes everything and mm-hmm. is. Together really well. I've seen some good previews for it. I've seen uh, some some of the scenes that they've cut together just a little bit differently, and they're they're doing a really good job with it. But of course, that is not licensed, and it's still worth. They they have to put their stuff out for free. So I don't know what their production costs are, but you can find that stuff for free. Yeah. Um. But getting back to the. No, we've kind of tangented. Getting back to the ad here, another fantastic thing about this ad is that we actually see an illustration of what the yellow mask looks like. He's your typical bald scientist type and wearing a yellow domino mask, which not exactly how I pictured the mask, but I guess it works. Not as good as a yellow visor. (laughs) It's just really cool that they're promoting the radio show storylines in the comics above just the basic plugs for the show, and I really hope that we see more of these down the road. And one last ad worth mentioning is an ad from the Daisy Manufacturing Company for the Superman Crypto Ray Gun. And this was, in essence, a handheld film projector. You could order various film strips for it, some featuring licensed characters or fairy tale type stories. Others were just generic adventure stories. But it would project on the wall when you squeeze the uh, quote-unquote trigger, it would project the images on the wall, and then you could read the story that way. Kind of like an early version of the... um, I've lost my brain now. It was a a little red toy. You put it up to your eyes like binoculars, and you flip through it. Viewmaster. Viewmaster, that's what it was. I I had a bunch of Superman Viewmasters when I was a kid, and my mom just found them. Hmm. Cool. She's on the other coast, so she's going to have to mail those to me. Along with, she has two viewers, and I guess I'm going to get one of those and the the Superman Viewmasters. And I know that they're older comic stories that are made to look 3D. Yeah. And I'm I'm not positive which ones they are because it's been a long time since I've seen those. But I will track down exactly what they are and where they came from because I know that they already exist existed before they became Viewmasters. 
that's probably going to bring back some memories when you get that and, and able to look at it. Oh yeah, I'm I'm going to have flashbacks to my awful childhood totally. <laughs> but they've advertised these uh, Daisy story guns in other comics, and this is the same thing, but Superman themed, obviously. For only fifty cents, you can order the gun and one story, which is remaking a heavyweight champ, which just might be the Larry Trent story that was originally published in the newspaper strips back in March of 39. And it says you can order other stories, including Reforming the Prison, Foiling the Football Crooks, Killing the Cat oh, Racket. From, from Action Comics number four. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but then there's uh, The Subway Mystery, Saving the Circus, and One Man Police Force. And all of those sound like stories that were either in the comics or newspapers. Yeah, the, 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 some of those are really early stories from 1938. I, I remember uh, at least three of those being in the first seven or so action comics. Probably, yeah. But for only 25 cents, you can get uh, – there are only 25 cents per set of three. So to get the ray gun and all seven stories would cost you a whole dollar. And the ad reads, Be a Superman. Be the first in your neighborhood to get and use either one of Daisy's new official Superman Crypto Ray Gun outfits. Ray Gun looks exactly like the Crypto Ray Gun used by Superman in his never-ending fight against crime. And um, not to spoil too much ahead, but we will be seeing that uh, adapted in a story not too long from now. So Really? And it's tuned. product placement, too. Uh-huh. I I, kind of figured that whatever the the thing was that the guy was using on Superman to make him weak and then put him into the jail cell in one of the stories we just talked about was the crypto ray gun. I thought that was the product placement. No, it's it's actually something that Superman uses. Excellent. That that's that's awesome in that not at all kind of way. Uh, But the ad continues. The ray gun is like the one Superman has made of kryptonite. That amazing metal from Superman's birthplace, the planet Krypton. It's safe and harmless. Pull the trigger and, the f- and flash on the wall the 28-scene picture story of Superman's thrilling adventures. So this is notable and cool for not only being one of the first Superman-themed toys to be advertised in the comics, but also the first mention of... Kryptonite. Yes. Even if, even if it's a much different kryptonite than what is traditionally thought of when people think of kryptonite and we'll talk more about it when we get to action comics 32 in a few episodes but if you're interested in the ad i'm I'm sure i'll be sure to include it in the show notes yes i used this ad when i talked about the history of kryptonite actually Uh because i didn't have anything to work off of to talk about the k-metal story so i just showed this ad and kind of left it at that I bet that there are just a couple of these out there somewhere that are possible to either see or even buy, and I bet they are thousands of dollars. I have seen them up for auction on like uh, heritage auctions and other uh-huh. high-end auction sites, and yes, they go for very high prices. And they probably barely work if they work at all. Yeah. But last but not least, we have our 17th Superman of America page. The main message is again signed by Clark Kent and talks about hitting the line hard, which means you are playing the game for all it's worth and doing your very best at anything you do. 
and he draws comparisons to the pioneers and says that the president, Congress, and every citizen need to needs to do their very best to make America a strong nation. In your dealings with everyone, hit the line hard. That means to be strong and fair and honest and sincere. And it, al- and it also means being the sort of American who can hold his head up and be proud to say, I'm a real American. And- All right. <laughs> Like always, yeah, yeah. These Superman of America pages are very uh, propaganda is one word for it. But like I know, always, and I'm kind of curious, like what they're even trying to be uh, propaganda about, except that like this is America, you need to be American, exactly, as opposed to you know the 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 lack of bipartisanship that's like you must be Republican, you must be Democrat, you must be liberal, you must be conservative, yeah. You, well, no, no, no. You just must be be American, and it is propaganda. But at least it's not like what we have today. Yeah. Well, you got to remember too. This was in the build up to. We're building up to World War II here. This is a definitely fall in 1940. So. Yeah, and I, I even thought when I saw the cover that it was making a World War II reference, but of course it did become part of one of the stories. The page also has Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code Mercury, number one on your. Superman of America Club Decoder and the message is be proud you are an American and live up to the great heritage of a great nation (laughs) sorry it's alright this issue came out the same month as Action Comics number 30 so I will cover the other books when I look at that story which is likely to be in episode 81 Do you enjoy time travel in general and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan and I will be your host. Together we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon... Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. Well, Jeffrey, thank you for coming on. It's been fun talking to you about something other than Green Lantern, I mean that show is fun, but I know that Superman is a lot closer to both of our fanboy hearts. Exactly. I mean, I love what we're doing with Green Lantern. I'm reading a lot of those stories for for the first time. Uh, anybody out there who's enjoying this show, take a listen over there. We also are joined by J. David Weeder, and we have a really great time taking a look at some 1980s Green Lantern stuff. It, it's 1980s now. We will eventually move on from there. But uh, 
I'm reading them for the first time and really enjoying them, even the ones that are not so great. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell the folks where else they can find you on the internet? Well, you can find me. I do two two regular columns at movies.com, which are the Man of Steel countdown, all about the upcoming Superman film. And uh, sometimes it's an, it's an opinion piece. Sometimes it's uh, talking about whatever news items that there are to talk about. I kind of go all over the place and sort of go through the whole spectrum of Superman from the history to what's going on now. And I also do a column on there called The Geek Debate, where I take two items that are of a geeky nature and sort of pit them against each other to say which one will come out on top. And I will probably have to do that at some point. I have also considered doing Star Wars versus Star Trek, but that, that should be like a series of articles. Um, the next one I'm thinking of doing is actually movies versus TV. And I'm not sure how my editor is going to take that since it is movies.com, but we'll, 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 we'll see what happens. And I am also on the Superman homepage. I, I do a few things over there. I'm one of the moderators. I started writing there about five years ago and have become, have gotten some really good friends I work along with Adam DeChannel and Michael Bailey and a whole bunch of others. And with Michael Bailey, that's where From Crisis to Crisis came from, was our meeting from both working at the Superman homepage. And in the case of Adam DeChannel, that's where Slipstream came from. He wanted to do some superhero comic book stories. And so I found an artist and started writing a superhero story. I had never written a superhero story before that. Oh, let's see. Where else can you find me? From Crisis to Crisis, Green Lantern's Light. Uh, that's enough. Give him the address one more time for Slipstream. For Slipstream, go to clockworkcomics.co.uk. It's a, it's a United Kingdom British site, so that's why it's not .com, but you can definitely get to it from there. And again, if you want to take a look at the whole story from, from the beginning of Slipstream, you can go down to the bottom of the page at clockworkcomics.co.uk and click on Slipstream the Archives, which will bring you to a page where you can click a little button that says Catch Up. And you can start from the beginning, read all the way up to where we are now. As we're recording this, we are several pages into season three. And just so that people are aware of of what to expect, there's one page published each week, but there's still plenty to read right now. And it will ultimately have six seasons, which is like six 12-page issues. And it will be followed up with an origin story. And then if we decide we're going to do a second arc after that, we will go ahead and do so. Cool. Well, next episode, I'll be by myself again and looking at the 17th storyline from the Superman radio show. In the meantime, please stop by greatcrypton.com for show notes, images from the stories we just talked about, all back episodes, and everything you need to know about the show. At the site, you will also find the RSS feed and the iTunes link if you want to subscribe to the show. And if you want to follow the show on Facebook or Twitter, the link to the show's pages on both of those networks can be found at the site as well. Any email or comments about the show can be sent to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. All constructive feedback is welcomed and appreciated, so get writing. Please remember the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network, two excellent sites for all kinds of Superman awesomeness once you're done listening to the show. And as Jeffrey mentioned, you can find 
Him and Me, along with J. David Weeder monthly on Green Lantern's Light, which you can find at greenlanternslight.com. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Jeffrey, thank you again. Thank you for having me. And to the rest of you, thanks for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. really loved how you were grammatically correct there. Where? Him and me and J. David Weeder. A lot of people will say things like he and I, which is not grammatically correct in that context. <laughs> so I re- the grammar Nazi in me is praising you. Uh, I tell you what, being friends with John Wilson has, has made me be more careful about my grammar. because <laughs> Okay, interesting. He, uh, he's, a, he's a grammar Nazi of the highest order. So <laughs> Yeah, pretty much the same here. Be proud, you're a Kryptonian. And live Sorry. up to the great heritage of a great planet yes. that exploded due to internal struggles. Um, all right. <laughs>